You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this special live edition of the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For Real Vision, I'm Max Sweethy. I'm joined today by two of my colleagues, Ed Harrison, our editor here, and then as well, Rao Powell, our glorious leader. Rao, Ed, thank you so much for joining me today. Great to be here as ever, Max. All Very right. So, so we are wrapping up our campaign for the last two weeks. I think all of us have done a couple of interviews, you know, looking at this question is everything a bubble? And really more importantly, the subheading of, of the campaign, you know, why that's potentially the wrong question. So Ral, I want to start with you. You've done a handful of interviews. You know, what have you taken away from, from, the, from the different people you've gotten to speak to about this question? I mean, firstly, this whole thing is the power of real vision, right? We compose a question that everybody wants to know the answer to, and I set off the campaign by kind of framing it all to say, look, it's a crazy time. I don't really know what the hell is going on. Uh, I know the secular changes and the cyclical stuff going on and the speculation. And what's so amazing about Real Vision is we can just pose it to the world's smartest people and say, well, what do you guys think? And you know, I, it just blows me away. I first did this years ago about the oil market. I figured out something weird was going on in the oil market. And I got a bunch of experts together, and it was like a massive breakthrough in realizing how powerful this is to get questions answered that people really need the answers to. And for me, I learned a lot, and it was exactly as I thought the answers were going to come back, is it's a bubble, but maybe not in what you think it is. And some things are real, long-lasting, major changes and other things are speculative mayhem. So it's kind of, and other things are market structural. It's kind of everything is all tied up together in this. You know, if I spoke you know, briefly about Mark Cuban, he's firmly focused on, look, the Fed is creating bubbles, but look at all this change that's going on. You're financialize, financializing the millennial and Gen Z generation. That's a secular change. Alex Gurevich talks about well, the bubble was in cash. And actually, this is a washout going back into assets. Diego, you know, he's built his whole fund around protecting against bubbles and looked at the structures of that. And Felix was getting concerned that things were rising, uh, the risks were rising, much as I would as well. So between all of those guys, those are just the guys that I interviewed, the four people over the two weeks, vastly different but a lot of nuance, and I thought that was really interesting. And Ed, you, I know you spoke with Lynn, you're perhaps uh, a little light in the interviewer chair, but you certainly have been keeping up with the campaign. You know, what did you talk to Lynn Alden about? And then maybe, you know, what did you take away from some of the other interviews that maybe you didn't participate in, but you watched? Yeah, uh, good question. I, so I, I, I talked to Tom Steyer also, as well as oh, Lynn. Yeah, right. And I think it was interesting, uh, the Corey Hofstein uh, interview. So maybe I'll have two or three things to say there. I mean, first of all, let's look forward, okay? Because right now when we're talking, uh, the we I, I just got an alert right before we came on that the one year, I think, hit a 52-week low, okay? Low yield on, on, the, uh, on the front of the curve. Whereas the 10 and the 30 year are going to ridiculously high levels, if you can call 2% a high level for you know, a, a 30 year bond. And the same thing for the 10 year. So looking forward, that's what we were talking about, Lynn and I. I mean, to, uh, I'll look forward and back before I get into the other two interviews and maybe Rao wants to jump in on this. But to me, it has hallmarks of 2018 written all over it. If you think about the yield curve and the interplay between yields and equities, basically what's happening is we're stair-stepping up as far as the market will allow us to go before it, you know the whole thing starts to unravel a little bit. And then we get to a new level, 
and then that's that level's okay. Because if you remember back then, it was like 275 to 285, 285 to 3%, 3% to 325. And in the meantime, Jay Powell was hiking rates. He said, I'm going to do three rate hikes in 2018. I know you say I'm going to only do two, but we're going to do three. And before the year was over, he did four. And when he did the fourth, that's when the whole thing fell apart. That's when we got the crash down. We got the Powell pivot. Uh, and in fact, it wasn't just a pivot. You know, these guys uh, started cutting rates and then they cut them all the way to zero. So we're sort of in that mode right now as we speak. That's how I'm looking at it. Forget about the bubble. This is where we're headed right now. Uh, yeah, Rao, what do you this think? Is I think it's interesting, Ed. So there is a reason that the front end, the one year, is doing what it's doing, right? Firstly, it's because of the pressure of steepeners that people are putting on. Yeah. So, you know, people are buying the short end and selling the long end. And that's being exacerbated by these flows out of the Treasury General account that is causing yields to go lower at the short end. Now, you know, I've been flicking through some of Zoltan stuff and other people. And there's a risk that it all goes negative because the repo markets are already showing some issues about this, which is a repeat of that 2018 thing. With yields rising, it's the rate of change, I think, is your point, stair steps. It's the rate of change that matters, and it's gone up pretty quick. So there is a risk, and I talked about it at the beginning of the whole um, series about the rising risk because everybody's one way. And Felix talked about that as well, is there is a potential very rapid unraveling to come. And I think Jason Buck was talking about the structures of how that happens and why it happens, why the connection between passive indexation and option dealer flows are creating this very fragile market that's non-volatile, 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 extremely volatile, both up and down. And, you know, the downside of the volatility is becoming riskier by the day. Now, how big an event that is, it doesn't feel like it's an economic event, it's a market event. And Felix's view was fascinating. He's like, this feels like 1987, and I, I don't disagree. If I went back and looked at 1987, and um, the dollar had been falling and started rallying a bit, not much, but a bit, like now. Oil was rallying, copper was rallying, bond yields were going up, Equity market was at new all-time highs, um, and that combination suddenly broke because everybody got one side of the boat, and then just a small event, whatever it is, the butterfly flapping its wings, and before you know it, you've created chaos. You know, I, I do feel, and I still remain, even after listening to all of these great people, that this risk is there, and the bond market is, as ever, the kind of daddy in the room. You know, the bond market and the dollar are always the big daddy here. Yeah. And, and you know, let me just uh, add into that, uh, Max, because uh, I think the interesting bit uh, in terms of an interview that I didn't do but came on today was this Corey Hofstein interview. I, I, I don't know Corey Hofstein. He's a young guy, uh, relatively young. He's probably in his 30s. Uh, but uh, I would say that, you know, he's, our, uh, he's my new guru in terms of market structure. Uh, he was throwing around some good terms like kurtosis. He was talking about uh, the kurtosis, uh, the fat tails, uh, kurtosis. You could see that the tails were getting fatter over time. If you did a statistical analysis, you could see from like 87 when you're talking about, or actually, I think it was 99 on his chart, up through uh, today, that the tails were are, are getting fatter. And so what I'm thinking in terms of what you just said, Rao, is that, okay, people say, oh, uh, you, you called out some risk and the risk didn't come out. No, that's not how it works. Uh, you have to have a hedge on that tail because when it does come and you don't know when it's going to come, it's going to come big. And that's the problem. Yeah. So and just to explain to people about tails, what he's talking about here is the normal distribution curve. And... The outlying event, big upside moves, big downside moves, usually it, it, it goes, tapers off a lot. So i.e. the probability of that happening is low. But what Corey is noticing is that it's becoming an increasingly probable event. So let's say it used to be a one in 100 chance. Actually, the numbers are much higher than that. Um, it ends up being you know, a one in 50. 
I mean, that means that the probability of one of these things has increased twice, twofold. So that's what, you know, that's why hedging has become an option, long option vault strategies have become particularly successful. And, and Jason Buck's been a pioneer in investing in that strategy with Mike Green and Diego Perilla and all of these guys who are finding a new strategy that didn't used to work in that low fat tail market is now working really well. So if I can, can put it all together, it seems like a lot of the discussion has been the delicate structure that's being built. That what you're talking about, Ed, with, with yields rising is potentially what could come and knock this whole thing over. And then the counterpoint to all of that is really the interview with Julian Brigden, where he said, yes, I agree about all of those things. But the one thing that also has changed is the speed and seriousness of the policy response. And that's mm. why he is still bullish. And he sees the potential breaking point as actually a buying opportunity. And so he's looking out for this because he believes, yes, there will be an event that that knocks everything down. Um, but he's going to be ready because everything that is being signaled by the policymakers is that they have all hands on deck to be able to come in. And things that took a year in 2008, like the swap lines, took a few days in in March of 2020. And so that trend is potentially continuing with the next crisis that we see, where it will only be that much faster. And so Julian, although he recognizes all of these risks, is still bullish on risk and sees any potential event really as an opportunity. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I've talked about much the same thing. It's one of the reasons I still like Bitcoin and gold is because any event leads to one outcome, more central bank action. Yeah. Right? It's as simple as that. So when you've got this response function that is baked in the cake, you kind of know what to do. So yes, equities could crack, but then out of that, as I've talked about, I want to buy emerging markets if yeah. I can get a chance at an entry because there's not going to be much time. I mean, this is the ridiculousness of the market structure we're in. And I laid it out on Twitter this week as well, when I basically divided the S&P by the Fed balance sheet. And, you know, after the, over the last 10 years, it's traded in a sideways range. So it's telling us the Fed balance sheet really is a big influence in this. And maybe we've even got the denominator wrong in assets. So there's a lot going on in this for people to get their heads around. And it's really important because... It is a Jenga tower that's being built. It's getting more and more fragile. And like Ed's suggesting, there are blocks being taken out of the bottom that could take the whole tower down. And as Julian's suggesting, maybe they can rebuild it quickly as well. But nobody wants to go through a 30% drawdown in two weeks. But you know, that's the kind of risk that stack up here. Yeah, and you know the existential question in all of that is uh, the same question we had with the great moderation. Uh, you know, when the great moderation was kicked around, people said that we've defeated cycles. Uh, you know, the policymakers, they know what to do. You know, central planning works, so to speak. Uh, but we found out that that's all a lie. It, it doesn't work. It, they didn't, you know, they didn't know what they were doing and bad things happened. So if you asked me what I think is going to happen, I think that the policymakers, even though they react with great speed, uh, they're not going to predict what the next problem is going to be. They're uh, taking care of one problem, but they're creating another, and we will be blindsided by that problem. Yeah, and I was having, you know, I've had a few conversations this week about some of this stuff, and it feels that we're all looking for the wrong thing. So we're looking like for the the, the, the larger fall in equities that sticks and holds. But this world may not exist anymore because you're changing the denominator. I keep mentioning that. And stuff like Bitcoin and equities are actually showing the reality of that. Because if you divide equities by gold, equities don't look overvalued. And gold is a price anchor that's worked for a very long time. So the relative value is suggesting maybe it's not a bubble. The bubble is actually in, in central banking, which was Mark Cuban's point. And I think that's probably true. And I think the markets are catching on to this somewhat as well. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
Yeah, we actually got a question from somebody who wants to know what comes after that 30% down in equities like you and Felix talked about. Is it a top in 2022 and then it comes crashing down? Or is it the start of a new bull cycle? Is it, you know, are we one and done? Or are we ever going to have a true bear market again? Well, can I, uh, can, let, let me uh, uh, posit a question uh, uh, slash answer to that. So I uh, to give to Rao. Uh, here's my uh, question slash answer. We're effectively taking the private sector's balance sheet onto the public sector. So when I talk about the fact that, I mean, when we talk about the central banks getting in there and getting big, what they're basically doing is taking risk out of the market, taking uh, you know the bad things that are happening over here, they're putting it onto their own balance sheet and centralizing it onto, onto their balance sheet and thinking that will solve the problem. Yeah, and the question is, is, is the bear market just in fiat currency overall? Because the outcome, as I keep saying, the only outcome is more. As Ed's saying, the, anything bad goes on, it goes on to the balance sheet of the central banks everywhere around the world. So you're just creating a new supply of money. And I, it, it's really dawning on me that that is probably the key driver of everything here, um, is this transferal, transference of debt into the central banks is causing the risk to tip over in areas that we're not even familiar with. You know, I had this conversation with a few people um, about what is inflation anymore. It's not CPI. It's probably this other factor that we don't even measure. Um, but it seems to be evident because people feel they're getting poorer. But it's not in the CPI numbers. They say the CPI numbers not lie, but maybe we're looking at the wrong thing. And even that is kind of a bigger conversation to be had um, and what that means for everybody. Because don't forget, and I don't want to sound alarmist and ridiculous, but Venezuelan equities always went up <laughs> as their currency went down a lot. And that's consistent with the pattern you're seeing globally when you normalize it by using a different asset. None of that inflation is there. If you Same thing with the German stock market. If you bought... If you held the, you know, the index, the German index through the Weimar Republic, you, you, you kept flat with the, with the devaluation. Yes, and that's what equities are actually doing if you divide it by the Fed balance sheet. And I, you know, and so maybe we were all right all along when we said, this is crazy what's going on with the central banks, but we were looking for something else to happen. And we didn't really understand what it was. The inflation everyone was waiting for was actually the fall in the in the purchasing power of fiat currency overall versus hard assets. It's, it's a fascinating time. Well, you know, for me, the most fascinating parts are, I would say, China, the emerging markets, and the Eurozone. And uh, the reason is, is because uh, the whole fiat currency central bank paradigm is focused around uh, countries that have monetary sovereignty and that are well-developed, big G7 type countries. You can include New Zealand, Australia, et cetera, in there. You don't have the same degrees of freedom in uh, the emerging markets. China is doing something totally different. They're not leveraging up their, uh, their balance sheet for their central bank. And then we've got the Eurozone. Uh, I think that's a very interesting place. Uh, Lynn Alden and I, we were saying our next conversation is going to be there. We just had the the Italian government get toppled because they didn't know what to do with all the money that the ECB is is monetizing for them. This is it. This is a whole structure where basically the ECB is the one who's doing the monetization. It's not like it is in the United States where you know you can go to the money tree and the the central bank and the central government work hand in hand. And so there's something that's going on there that we that we don't know how that plays out. I think it plays out in Italy in some in some form. Yeah. Well, I would like to take this opportunity to remind everybody who's watching outside of the Real Vision platform. I know that this episode is going to YouTube. That uh, all of the interviews that we talked about, Mark Cuban, Felix Zuloff, uh, this this interview with Corey Hofstein, Julian Brigden, um, and Ral, your your video kicking everything off can all be found at realvision.com. And we have a special pricing right now where you can you can sign up for an essential membership for $199. You can sign up for a plus membership where you can hear that conversation with Alex Gurevich, Diego Perea, and a couple of other interviews, which I, I want to plug a little bit later, for $499. And then as well, 
uh, on Pro where you get Ral your trade ideas uh, for seven hundred and fifty dollars a quarter versus the normal eight seventy five. So to everybody who's watching, you know these prices do close at the end of the day today to wrap up our campaign. But there is more content than you could possibly consume uh, in two weeks. So please. Please check it out, and and you can also sign up for for just a trial for a dollar. As always, you can sign yeah, up. You know, again, I can't express enough. We're doing this to help people, and if you really want to understand what's going on in the world, then Real Vision is there to try and help you navigate it. We don't have all the answers. There is no guru at Real Vision. What there is is the smartest people giving you their best thoughts, and that's invaluable. Yeah, the hive mind. Yeah, I, I like how you put that, too. I mean, it reminds me of the concept that do your own research. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, what you're getting out of this experience is, is you're taking a collection of different ideas. You don't have to agree with them that are making you, uh, uh, you know, you're in interpolating them and putting them into your own uh, framework, that your own risk tolerances, your own thinking about the economy. And it's a great way to, you know, get a gut check on whether or not you're looking at things the right way. Yeah. And, and to take some of the interviews that I actually got to do, had the pleasure of doing this this past two weeks. You know, I talked to people who were looking at growth companies, those secular changes that, that Rao was talking about that that are going to outlast any sort of correction um, with Ophir Gottlieb from from Capital Markets Laboratory. You know, he went through three different ideas of these these growth stocks that he thinks it doesn't matter whether the market goes down, like their business prospects uh, based on the, the macro tailwinds are just so great that they're going to grow no matter what. And then as well, looking at, at opportunities, say like Fannie and Freddie, where yeah, it's it's taken a long time, but these things are trading at 20 cents on the dollar. And if you model it as a zero coupon bond, if it takes three years, that's an 80% yield. If it takes five years, that's a 40% yield. If it takes 10 years, you know that's yield in the high teens. And you just can't find that anywhere else. Those are the types of idiosyncratic opportunities that you want to try and find out here. Um, and and that's, that's just an example of what we had on the plus tier. And an essential is, is really just bringing together all of these these great people to to develop a framework um, because that's what you have to rely on and go back on when you reach these points of uncertainty like we're at now is your own framework because without that you won't have any conviction and and you'll just be whipsawed by a market like this you know you said something there that made me think about Corey Hofstein for a second I want to spin this to uh, Rao. Uh, you were talking about Fannie and Freddie and waiting 10 years. And Corey Hofstein said something about liquidity. Uh, and he was talking about the 60-40 portfolio. And he basically said, like, if you wanted to get, you know, 7%, you could do 60-40 uh, at a certain point in time. Uh, and then he went forward as rates came down. And he said, actually, you now need to get, uh, you know, like 2080. And then finally... Uh, you know, he had a whole panoply, uh, a panoply of stuff that you had to get now today in order to get that same return. Some of it was, you know, like private equity. A lot of these were illiquid uh, investments. And I think his point was that when bad things happen, as they did in March of 2020, if you're getting your return uh, over that 10 year period and some of that stuff is illiquid, you're going to need to sell your liquid stuff in order to make sure that you uh, you can degross, you can deleverage. That puts a huge amount of extra pressure on public equity markets, Ralph. I mean- yeah. And you know, don't forget the structure of public equities, as I've mentioned many times, is mutual funds have the lowest ever cash, right? There is no cushion. The option dealers, all-time record uh, short gamma. So if the market turns, they have to sell. Speculators, all-time record long. Pink sheet activity, all-time record highs. Hedge fund gross exposure, all-time record. Hedge fund net exposure, all-time record. I mean, I've never seen this kind of setup in my life. So who is the buyer? That is the question I keep asking, is who is the buyer of equities? So sure, over time buyers come in, the passive index funds, the, you know, the, the people who are looking for stressed opportunities, but I don't see an immediate buyer to step in because everybody's all in. And that worries me. Doesn't mean it's going to stop right now, 
because we don't know which one of these events, the yield curve, the dollar, or something else, causes it. But it's not a market for me. I, I, I don't like it um, because it, I feel like I can't assess the downside risk. So I won't short it. I'll buy some protection, but I don't like to put money at work in a market like this because I think it's terrifying. Um, and I could have egg on my face for that. That's okay. I don't mind not participating sometimes when I can't get hold of the risk. FOMO is not a way to invest. Yeah, if, you, if, you, if you're not an indexer or a closet indexer, uh, there's no reason to, to play ball. You, you, can, you can play somewhere else. And speaking of which, I mean, uh, crypto, uh, what's, uh, how do you, I mean, for those who, I'm not a crypto guy, okay? So uh, assume that you're talking to me. How do you look at the crypto space in the context of what you just said? Well, it's interesting because it's structurally very different. So structurally, it was owned by retail. And now you're getting institutional adoption. And so what you're creating is a flaw. So crypto is volatile by nature. It will correct 30 or 40% in a few days. But what you've got is a wall of money coming in that basically moves up the moving averages all the time. So it's structurally a very different market. I don't need to ask who's the buyer. In crypto, I'm asking who the hell is the seller? And all this crypto is being taken off the exchanges. So the only actual sellers are the miners, and they're not selling a lot, or traders. So the short-term liquidity of traders is basically the only infantry to buy. I've not seen a market like that before. It's the complete polar opposite of the traditional markets right now. I've never seen a market where there is no inventory to buy and the biggest buyers in the world are walking in saying, I'll have some, I'll have some in your size. And all it's doing is disrupting price to the upside and it will continue to do so. And we will have some horrifically large corrections and we'll all go about our business in a few weeks or a month or two, it'll all be over again and it'll be back to new highs until something dramatic changes in this market. Also, people to understand, go to the traditional market. This is why I love crypto right now. Traditional markets, right? You've got your money in cash. You get zero interest. You're in the crypto market. You've got it in Bitcoin, which is going up. And you're still earning between 3 and 6% interest. You have literally no incentive to sell your Bitcoin to anybody. And even if you do, you keep it in stable coins and you're getting 6 to 8% interest on USDC. So it's like a whole world of an embarrassment of riches of returns where you're getting rewarded for the risk you're taking and you've got yield. I mean, that is a sucking sound and a much more robust system right now. The dynamics will change over time. It'll get, it'll get excessively frothy and speculative and we will tip the dynamics. I don't see that happening because why even bother to sell? I mean, there are kids out there who are millionaires now and they're earning enough to live on just from the interest in their Bitcoin. I mean, this is mind blowing. In the traditional world, everybody's getting killed. <laughs> it's you know, so, you know, this is why this space excites me so much. So uh, someone's got to play the devil's advocate here, though, right? Uh, uh, Max, I'm looking at you. You, you have Me? like the, no, the, no, the I poker mean, face. I, I'm going to ask the question this way, okay? Uh, and may, uh, maybe you're going to ask it back to me or to Rao. What about, given everything that Rao said is true, what about the concept that you are Michael Saylor and you're issuing uh, zero coupon bonds, which is pretty sweet, by the way, I might add, and buying? No, to me, though, what Ral is saying is 100% true, and Michael Saylor issuing the bonds is an example of it's just another layer on top. It's taking advantage of the ridiculousness in the traditional finance system to go where there is where there is room. It, it's basically like you should – people have often said like the, the distortion in, in central banks setting interest rates is preventing the market from being able to set interest rates. And this is, is an out – this is a door out to get out of that system. And – the interesting thing is because the uh, the existing system is still there, you can take advantage of it to actually benefit on the other side. I mean, um, it's, it's actually a macro bet is what he's doing, right? If, he's, if he thinks that 
as many people do, that inflation is coming in a certain way, you borrow as much money as you can because the value of that debt you have to pay off is less. And if he's buying Bitcoin because he's got his structural reasons he wants to own Bitcoin and he thinks it offsets, he's making double the money because he has to pay, pay back half the debt because of inflation erodes the debt. It's 0% interest anyway, and he'll benefit his Bitcoin. It's a macro bet he's taking in it. It's actually pretty clever. As now, long as he's got the liquidity to yeah pay back the debt. That's right. Why not? Um, so we did advertise this, that we would take some questions. We took a few already, but I do want to get to some uh, before we close things down. So uh, let's see here. Landon, we've got two questions from Landon. Um, he says, wouldn't a stock market crash bring down Bitcoin as well? Um, news, you know, news like Tesla selling can trigger, you know, new, what about news like Tesla selling their Bitcoin? Are you worried about, you know, these people who have made the big public statements? Not only could Tesla bring down the equity markets, which could trigger a risk off event, which could affect Bitcoin, but also now you have, you know, these big big funds, or not funds in the case of Tesla, but big companies who have yeah. potentially driven the price up. I'll address both of those. We know that if the markets fall, the Fed reaction function is to do something about it. So therefore, Bitcoin goes up. Of course, it will get hit in liquidity. There's leverage in Bitcoin. There's plenty of leveraged traders. People are going to reduce risk. Hedge funds will reduce risk. Bitcoin gets smacked down a bit, but it recovers very quickly afterwards. Um, because it is actually the best way to express the view about the central banks. That's the market's perce perception right now. So that works really well. In terms of the sellers, well, Ruffer, who bought $650 million of Bitcoin, already sold $650 million because their bet doubled. And they sold it to their original stake off the table. And the market's going to have to get used to this because... With an asset that goes up 100% a quarter or more, most participants are going to sell 50% of their exposure every quarter if they rebalance. I mean, that's a change in supply structure for Bitcoin. Now, we don't have that many rebalances in it yet, but BlackRock in it, in it are traditional rebalances, rougher traditional rebalances. They, they tend not to hold like an index all the way through. They tend to have an asset allocation. We want, let's say, 2% in Bitcoin. If Bitcoin goes up to 4% of the portfolio, they'll halve it. So the structure is going to change, and people will have to get used to that news flow. Um, but at some point, like every market, Bitcoin's just a market, and at some point, there'll be more sellers than buyers, and that will go on for a period of time. And that could be a two-year bear market. So, you know, the dynamics will change. Right now, I don't see the dynamic change, but we might get very choppy around month ends, a quarter ends, because that market's never had the structure before. Okay. Question um, from Alex, who wants to know, do you think 30-year US bonds are a decent hedge against a Bitcoin bear market, just in case there's some sort of black swan? I don't think there's any hedge, really. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're living in a brave new world. I, I, I keep going back to the, this concept that, you know, the buyer of last resort uh, is the central bank at this point because, uh, you know, no one else can be there. The pandemic is proving that this is the case. And so then the question becomes, uh, are they there? Will they be there? What kind of damage will happen before they get there? And uh, can, can, can they keep this going? Where's the leakage from that system? Bitcoin is certainly one of the places where the leakages are. Um, I, I tend to think that uh, policymakers are reactive. So I would imagine that you will see another burst forward, both at the short end of the curve and the long end of the curve, particularly at the long end. So I think that forgetting about the Bitcoin part, I think that when this whole thing uh, becomes too bubblicious, you're going to see bonds go up uh, as opposed to go down. Ed, okay. where do you think the Fed put is now? I think that the Fed put in terms of, uh, are you talking about like the equities? The equity put and then the fixed income put. Where, where are those two to, in your mind? So I think Jay Powell's thinking about uh, uh, leveraged loans and uh, private equity. You know, when we talk about Chuck Prince uh, saying we're going to dance, he was actually talking about the leveraged loan market. 
uh, back in 2007. So Jay Powell's thinking about that market. We're also thinking about the equity market. I think that for me, it's the leveraged loan and the high yield market that come first. And the reason is, is because that if rates are going up and then spreads are going up too, then you have a double whammy for those markets. And those markets, uh, you know, there's going to be an automatic deleveraging as a result of that. There's the, the, the debt markets, as we saw with regard to what happened with uh, too much debt associated with houses, is all, it's always bad. Credit markets lead in a way that is pernicious. And if people can't pay their debts, I think that's when he's going to, uh, to get in there. So I would... Honestly, I think that uh, it depends. I would say that 150 is my first level uh, to to worry about in terms of do they start talking more about YCC, yield curve control. But I don't think we can get that much further before we start to hear rumblings of where we're going to intercede in some capacity. Yeah, and I think the Fed put in equities is probably down 20%. You start to hear Fed saying, you know, we're monitoring the situation carefully. You know, they probably don't even have to do anything to stabilize market. It's, it's, it's a crazy one. I can't get my head around it. But anyway, Max. I actually think that there's a speed aspect to it. Like if, if it's a if it's a 10 percent move in a day and they're very it's easy for them to say that it's structure. And so they're stepping in because it's a plumbing issue versus if we have a three month sell off and, we, you know, we go down a couple percent every week and you look back and you're like, wow, we're down 15 percent. Isn't it, isn't it amazing that we never really talked about plumbing until 2008? We kind of saw the debt build up. 87, we saw a bit of plumbing in the equity market, but ever, but then we saw nothing. And now this massive build up in debt, I mean, plumbing is like the hot topic, right? Yeah. You know, you've got these plumbing experts everywhere. People like Zoltan is now like exalted because yes. he's like the Sultan Zoltan. You know, uh, here's an interesting thing. Uh, so if we think about uh, th this issue at the short end of the curve, where you were saying it could go negative, uh, we also think about repo and collateral and that people want to have high, high value collateral. Uh, uh, that's a, a artifact of the great financial crisis. So what we saw today, I think you could have an exacerbation of in the future where you see moderately negative rates at the low end and you're going up to 150, 160 at the, the high end. If we go from where we are now, 134 to 150, that's a pretty substantial move in a short period of time. But again, there's the whole stair-stepper thing. I think, Max, you're right on point when you say, uh, you know, you could, it depends on the pace. Because going back to 2018, 275 was one level, I remember. Then 285 was the next level. And we sort of got up there from January to December. It was a whole year before the market threw up and said, that's it, you know, time out. We can't take it anymore. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Yeah. So a question from, from Larry who asked about Diego Perea's interview where he talked about, you know, three anti-bubble plays, the VIX, treasuries, and gold. Um, he wants to know whether you know, either of you are, are playing any of those as, as your sort of anti-bubble trades at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, in that piece that I kicked all this off the previous week about, about the high risk, I talked about buying calls on treasury bonds, mm -hmm. saying, listen, if anything changes, then yields are going to come down very sharply um, because of what we talked about with the central bank and the fact that everybody's short bonds. So they're pretty cheap, and maybe that's a way of hedging a bit of the Bitcoin risk as well. You know, it, it seems it's a good bet, but expect to lose your money because we're in a bull market right now, and rates are going up, and there's a reflation trade. But if it pays off, it pays off big, and that was Diego's point. He thinks the VIX is even bigger, and I talked about it again in that piece that I did. I released that emergency piece on a Sunday night to say, if the VIX breaks 40, 
everything changes. And you can see it on the chart, and, and Diego talks about the same. The VIX breaking 40, suddenly the VIX goes to 100. So the payoffs are very sharp in VIX. Problem is, it costs you quite a bit of money, and you basically lose a lot of money waiting for that bet to play out. So you kind of have that. They're never easy to trade these, but as hedges, they're fine. You're just going to remove some of your upside if you do it. Yeah, an anti-bubble trade is almost like what's the best tourniquet out there? You know, what's going to make you bleed the least uh, but still keep you alive? Yeah. Well, you know, Hari Krishnan's uh, uh, moniker comes to mind, which is, you know, buy hedges when you can, not when you need them. And I think that, you know, the two trades that Raul just talked about tells you that the one in bonds is the easier one to put on because that's cheaper. It's cheap now because, look, you know, the uh, it looks like inflation is going to go through that. You know, we're going to get massive stimulus. Yields are going up. You know, the yield curve is steepening. Banks are making money. You know, that's a great trade until it's not. And then suddenly that's when you want to to put the the uh, the the uh, the hedge on. By that time, it's going to be too expensive to put it on. Yeah, as so, Dave nicely says, he goes, if the VIX is inverted to the equity market, I when the equity market keeps going up, VIX goes down. So he said the the amazing thing is the more expensive the equity market is, the cheaper the hedge. Yeah, and people don't get their head around that, but that's what's happening. And in bonds, it's exactly the same. The hedge is really cheap, but you know, if you look at bonds over the last 30 years, they do nothing but go down in yields because of debt, deflation, demographics and technology and globalization. So, you know, it's always good to have some of those bets on because if they pay out, they pay out huge. OK, hey, can I introduce let me introduce a, a random uh, topic into this whole thing, just because this is the outlier video. Tom Steyer, uh, I've just been thinking about this the whole time because I, I was telling you about three videos. I told you about uh, the one that I didn't do. Uh, which was Corey Hofstein, uh, Lynn Alden. But then Tom Steyer, you know, the, when I spoke to him, he was a, a Democratic uh, nominee for president in 2020. The sense that I got, honestly, was it was almost like if he uh, uh, could talk about the fourth turning, he would. That he was talking about a situation in which there's like a generational uh, shift here that's almost combustible. That's that's the the sense that I got from the conversation. You know, and Mark Cuban had the same, and um, you know, the, I think even I think Felix Zulai talked about this, and I talked about this with Kirill Sokolov, and I talked about that. I mean, there is a real shift going on, and there's a shift of wealth and power potentially happening as well. Uh, it's it's a it's a really interesting time, and, and it feels like Neil Howe is going to be right. Well, and it is creating, though, some opportunities. So the interview that I did with uh, Todd Harrison about, I called it the other wall of money. So yeah. marijuana, you know, for for 100 years now has been, been the devil's lettuce. And, you know, now <laughs> attitudes are changing. And But the thing is, attitudes are changing and politics is changing faster than the regulation is changing. And so in the same way, maybe it's a smaller wall of money. Um, because as you say, Raul, you know, the TAM of Bitcoin is the TAM of money. Well, the TAM of... The TAM of marijuana is not as large, but there is no, still because- an institutional an institutional wall of money waiting to get into this space. And that's happening right now because of those generational shifts. Yeah, and I, I just think that um, a chemical product that actually puts you to sleep is never great for stimulus <laughs> overall. I mean, particularly the stronger all the super scum strains become and the more, uh, you know, Yeah, I, I personally find it, Hilarious, because all you're creating is a stoner economy in the end, because nobody does anything. Well, somebody somebody commented on a, a thing. They're like, "Well, isn't everybody going to grow it themselves?" I'm like, "We're talking about stoners here, and you're saying the risk to the trade is their ingenuity and hard work." Uh, you know, I'm all jokes. It. It's not. It's not that easy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all jokes aside, here. And I, and I know I'm, I'm only joking. I mean, it's all the pharmaceutical stuff and everything else. And even my dog, who's got an injured spine right now. She's on CBD oil. Yep. I mean, that's how much the, and this is the Cayman Islands, which is pretty conservative. Obviously, we're next door to Jamaica, so there's no shortage of weed, but um, it's a pretty conservative place. And, you know, my dog is now on CBD oil. So there you go. All right. So, I mean, we're coming to the end here. Um, We have a few questions. Uh, Why don't we go with here? Here's a fun one. So, all right. So let's say that the bubble is in central banking. Guillermo wants to know who will be 
this times John Law, who's going to be the poster child of central banking gone wrong. And I'm going to give that to both of you. So if the central bank bubble blows up, Ed, who will be the John Law devil of, of this central banking? My, my view has always been is the leader is Japan and it will remain Japan. Japan had a pretty good recession this time around. So they delayed it. It could be the ECB. I still think it's Japan. They own so much of their own bond market. They're just one event away from owning it all. Now they got away from this one and they were lucky. But if they had had this virus badly and had to suffer you know, a year of rolling lockdowns, would have been worrying whether the Japanese were going to have a debt jubilee. I can see Ed is nodding furiously about the ECB. Yeah, yeah. I like what you have to say about Japan, I have to say, because, uh, you know, where Japan goes, everyone else follows. But I I'm looking at the nexus of, uh, you know, the political economy and, uh, you know, very bad structural uh, issues. And you got that in spades in Europe. I mean, just think about this guy, this rapper who was in uh, Spain, how, you know, there are riots on the streets. When we're talking about the fourth turning and stuff like that, I mean, this is a manifestation of all that. And at the same time, here's a central bank that is totally unelected, that's doing everything, you know, for the, for the entire economy, because none of these countries have their own money. That's where bad things are going to happen. I think it's going to be the ECB. They're going to go one step too far or one step too few, and the whole political system will implode. So if Ed thinks it's the ECB and I think it's the BOJ, it's almost definitely the Fed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. We haven't even talked. I mean, Ed was saying Eurozone, and I think probably he still puts uh, the UK in there. So we, we have that. Where's that? Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Where? And by the way, the one That's bank that we're not talking about, we're not we're not talking about the PBOC because the PBOC they want to get digital uh, currency, central bank digital money. That could maybe they're the ones who uh, break the the apple cart. Yeah, I mean the UK. I mean, is it, is it, you know, flipping. It's going to be very interesting because there's some massive structural problems. There's a huge deficit. I mean, the big super trend that none of us are talking about that I wrote about in GMI is taxes everywhere are going up. There is no way they can get around that. They will continue to try and devalue debt in any way that they can, whether it's inflation or fit devaluation, and they will tax. Um, the UK is in a bit of a mess with that. And you know, the currency is getting stronger right now. And the economy is going to rebound as, as ever. But the UK has got a lot of wood to chop still at the country level. And it's not clear how long before the country is kind of liberated from the vision of the Brexiteers that it becomes a free and uh, you know, a free market economy that trades with everybody. It's just not there yet. I mean, the regulation, the rules, everything has to change. It's a long, long journey. But, you know, who knows? Okay. Well, we're coming down to the end here. I want to give you each an opportunity to put a bow on it and give your takeaways from, from this two weeks of content. Ed, we'll start with you. Yeah, I would say that, uh, you know, let, let me look in the, the positive. Uh, whereas before we were talking about the, um, the unfolding and the, uh, the insolvency phase, I think that the central banks have done enough. And we, with the vaccine, we have enough so that that is delayed. Uh, but when I say delayed, I don't mean ended. I mean that we're going through a structural shift now. We don't know how long that's going to take. But at a minimum, I'm much more positive about the near term. And I think that the, uh, if anything, it's the upside, you know, more upside before any downside that I think will surprise. Yeah, I probably err that way too, but I, but I'm as I said, I'm worried about the risk. So you know, I kind of think, could the markets do another twenty percent upside into the summer? Yeah, almost certainly possible. Uh, do we have a thirty percent downside at the moment? Yeah. So I, I can't. That's not a good risk reward for me. So I'm, I'm, I just can't do anything with that. I desperately want to buy emerging markets, but I can't. The dollar's kind of not going anywhere, so it's not giving us a signal. The bond market. I don't think it's sustainable, as we've talked about. 
So I just, I'm finding traditional markets really difficult to invest outside of secular themes. We're seeing the secular theme, this whole GameStop movement of young people into finance, right? Real Vision is part of that example. It's really powerful trend for us. And I think that's really exciting. Um, and it won't go without hiccups, but you know, there's an exciting super trend. There's some super trend in, in technology. There's the super trend in crypto and the digital asset space. There's a super trend in marijuana. Um, there's probably a super trend in um, other forms of, um, you know, the hallucinogens that were also being used for pharmaceutical purposes. There's a clear super trend going on in pharma and biotech. Um, so there's some really interesting things to invest in. Uh, it's just now a matter of, can you get a good level to, to get entry if you don't have any on, or do you just buy momentum? Um, in some of these, you can because you kind of know they should recover. To Max's point, some of these are just great long-term stories. It's like India for me is another one of these mega trends that you know if it falls 20 or 30 percent, you shouldn't care. You should be just putting money into it. So it is complicated, but you know I'm I'm optimistic about a number of things. I think there's money to be made. And Max, before uh, you, uh, since you're uh, stopping aside, I just want to remind our viewers that, you know, for those who are watching, we, uh, we release a new daily briefing pretty much every weekday on the Daily Briefing YouTube channel. So I, I, later when this video comes out, there's going to be a link in the description if people want to subscribe. I thought I should get that in there. And I know there's a bunch of my friends who watch this who haven't subscribed to Real Vision because they're cheapskates. But I do urge, A, there's a deal, or B, take the $1 trial and then watch all of that two weeks content if you want to be a dick about it. But enjoy it. It's there. Um, you know, just go to realvision.com and, uh, and dig in. And for those of you on Real Vision, as ever, thank you, guys. You guys are an unbelievable group of people. This whole business is all about the members and the value you bring to it in the exchange and elsewhere in the comments section. Um, it's just extraordinary. So I'm really proud to be part of this as ever. I think it's well a great said. place to leave it. Thank you both. Take care. Thanks. So yeah, have a good weekend, everyone. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.